God, as we open our word, as we open our Bibles today, open our hearts to your word, to your goodness, to your spirit. Lord, let us see your glory this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you can be seated, and if you have children, you can dismiss them to children's ministry. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 9. Romans, chapter 9, and we're going to be reading here in a moment, beginning in verse 13. So we're wrapping up our mini-series on salvation, and I knew as I was working through this series that I should probably preach a sermon about hell. Um, Being saved from hell is not the ultimate goal of the gospel, as we saw last week, but it is indeed a glorious goal, and it's important from time to time for us as a believing uh, body of uh, saints who believe in the inerrancy and authority and sufficiency of God's word to put a stake in the ground and say, yeah, we're one of the weirdos that still believe in this thing called hell. So I wanted to make sure that before we exited this series on salvation, I talked about it. But as I began to do the work to prepare that message, I realized, you know, we are not in this cultural moment especially well-suited for processing information that offends us. And I, I am not necessarily thinking about you when I say that, but I am not necessarily thinking about you all the time when I preach either. Like, I, I want to make sure that if I'm going to preach a sermon about hell, I do as much work as I can to help people to think well about the doctrine, not merely provide a series of facts. The series of facts about hell are relatively standard and objective, but the ability to think well about such a difficult doctrine, well, that's probably something we could use some help with. We're in the moment, I think, where uh, we, have, we, are, we are almost eager to be offended. Uh, I was with, on a college visit with my son uh, two days ago, and I was with another family. We were with another family. It was a mother and her son. And uh, we were walking around, and this coach is an extroverted extrovert, you know, and he's just kind of talking because that's what he does, you know. He's, he doesn't really mean anything by it. He's just, he's just a talker. And so we're walking around the campus, and he turns to the mother of the other son, the other boy, and says, I think you are, are you a teacher? And she says, uh, well, why do you think that? He says, I don't know. That's, I just, sometimes I get, I get a vibe, and I think maybe you're a teacher, and and she says, well, I actually, you know, I, I, I work at a preschool. And he's like, yep, knew it. And, uh, and then she says, did you think I was a teacher because I'm a woman? Why didn't you ask if I was a physicist? And I said out loud, first of all, I laughed, a nervous laugh. <laughs> and then I said, eject, eject. <laughs> you know, I, I, I kind of just had this moment of like, oh, my goodness, this is getting really, really awkward. And the coach, you know, he's just a good old boy. Like, he, he didn't see this train coming at all. Like, he is deer in the headlights. I do not know what to say. And so he looks at me and he says, you know, this is his bailout, which I think was an appropriate bailout. He looks at me and says, what do you do? And I said, I'm a preschool teacher. <laughs> Actually, I teach them physics. And uh, uh, I teach preschoolers physics. Uh <laughs> And thankfully, the tension was relieved a little bit. The woman realized, like, you're outnumbered by people who aren't looking to be offended, so you're just going to have to get on the, the, the nice person train for a minute. But, uh, but, but you know, 
that, that, that ties in two ways. First of all, there's this general tenor that we can see amongst those that I really want to think about this doctrine. There's a general tenor that, that we can see that essentially equates being offended as like, well, that's, that's it. If something offends me, it can't be good. And what I want to talk about today is that, of course, something can be offensive and good at the same time. Um, there are plenty of things that are offensive and helpful or good or valuable. Um, and, and so I want to talk about that. But I also want to say that it would be easier for me to teach physics to preschoolers uh, than it would be for me to do a good job explaining or teaching this. And that's not because I know and yet somehow you're, so, you're like preschoolers and you can't understand it. It's not that at all. It's just this is big stuff we're talking about. But if I've ever had any complaint against the church, growing up in the church, it's, it's been perhaps sometimes a tendency to run away from the things that are difficult. And boy, we sure aren't doing that today. Romans 9 might be the most offensive passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. Obviously, that's a subjective evaluation, but let me explain why I think that. I think two of the most offensive doctrines in Scripture are, first of all, the sovereignty of God over salvation, and secondly, the doctrine of hell. So those two doctrines are (laughs) offensive to our human sensibilities. The idea that God is sovereign over all things is offensive to, 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 the, to the desire that I have as a part of my uh, indwelling sin I received from my first parents, Adam and Eve. I want to be like God. And so the doctrine of God's sovereignty is offensive to my sensibilities in that regard. The doctrine of hell is likewise offensive in many ways, and we're going to talk more about it next week. Next week, I'm really just going to uh, rephrase and deliver a couple of Jonathan Edwards' sermons to you, as I think he does a great job explaining this. I'll, I'll make it to where there aren't so many these and thous, but, uh, but you're going to be especially blessed next week because you won't have to listen to really my sermon. It's, just, it's Jonathan Edwards rephrased. Uh, but, but these two doctrines, the, the doctrine of, of God's sovereignty over all things, especially God's sovereignty over salvation, and the doctrine of hell, these are very offensive to uh, human sensibilities. And Romans 9 has them both going in tandem. Right? So that's why I say it might be the most offensive uh, section of Scripture in the whole Bible. Uh, but, but there's one thing it does, and this is very important, and that's why we're, we're camping out on it today. There's one thing it does besides giving us a, a view of God's sovereignty over salvation and, and the doctrine of hell. Uh, it, it tells us how to think about hard things. So that's very interesting to me. Because I believe that God wrote this, right? Inspired through the Holy Spirit, the work that Paul's putting forward in Romans 9. And so what I find is this interesting idea that in one of the most offensive parts of the Bible, God includes in a very kind, fatherly, almost prof- professorial way, hey, I want to help you to know how to think about these things. I'm not only going to present this information and say, take it or leave it. Here's the verse. What's your problem? But I'm actually going to teach you how to think. And that's very interesting to me that God would do that. So let's go ahead and read uh, uh, Romans 9, beginning in verse 14. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, I'm in verse 18, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So three things happening here. The doctrine of hell and eternal destruction is placed forward. Uh, eternal ongoing destruction. We need to qualify that a minute. There's the doctrine of God's sovereignty over salvation put forward very strongly in this passage. But then there's also this ability to think. This, 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 this class on how to think about things that are hard and offensive. And you know what? That's going to help us way beyond just grappling with these two difficult theological principles. Because the truth is, is that God brings hard circumstances into our lives. And the tools we get from this passage on how to think about hard doctrines will also help us to think about hard circumstances. And there are also other hard doctrines that aren't mentioned in this text that will still apply with the same kind of tools. Like for some, the, the doctrine of complementarianism is a difficult doctrine. Or for some, the doctrine of tithing is a difficult doctrine. Or for some, the, 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 the biblical teaching on sexuality is a difficult doctrine. And let me just tell you that when you have a difficult doctrine, when you have a difficult teaching with which you must wrestle and contend, this is a pretty good outline on how to think about those things. So really, we're going to talk about how to think about hell, how to think well about hell is the title of the message. But we're really just talking about how do I go into a moment of circumstance or a teaching in scripture that offends me? And how do I walk out the other end? Maybe not with all my answers solved, but trusting the one who I believe is the God of the universe. This text is going to help us do that. About uh, two hours east of here, out in the middle of uh, nowhere in central Missouri, there's a farmer I know of. About two months ago, he went to a chiropractor, first time ever. He's a guy about my size, big boy, and, uh, but he wears overalls, so he looks better than I do. Uh, and uh, and he, goes to the, he goes to a chiropractor the first time ever. Now, you can imagine being a farmer in central Missouri, going to a chiropractor, like that's kind of rot with a lot of questions. Not a lot of chiropractors in central Missouri and so forth. And so he goes and he gets an adjustment. And the next morning he wakes up paralyzed. And, uh, and he is paralyzed. He, he literally woke up incontinent and unable to move his legs. And he's about my age. And I don't know him well. I've only met him, but I know people that know him well. And I immediately began to worry about this man's faith. You know, he didn't strike me as an especially deep Christian, whatever that's supposed to mean. 
And I worried, like, how is he going to process this powerfully difficult chain of events? And you know what? He really is just a simple country boy. And he doesn't, he's never heard of John Piper or let alone Jonathan Edwards or, you know, he's not a deep guy. But he wakes up in bed, in a hospital bed the next day, unable to move his legs, unable to control his bowels. And he just says, I am not going to blame God for this. And he's progressed and he's able to move a little bit now. I think he's actually able through a, a bunch of heroic feats to pull himself up in his tractor although I don't think he can use his legs very well yet. But all this time as he's walked through this difficult, difficult circumstance, he hasn't blamed God. In fact, he's closer to God than he's ever been before. And that's what we're really thinking about as we're talking about doctrines or circumstances that offend us. The goal is, how do I get through it? How do I move through it? And hopefully emerge on the other side closer to the Lord. So, Uh, Three attitudes that seem to be presented in this passage that will help us deal with difficult scriptures and circumstances. The first one is humility. Look back at verse 19. You will say to me then, how does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So let's talk about his approach, first of all. One thing we see here, it's very interesting, is that Paul responds to, he, he's, he's laying out a teaching and he anticipates objections to that teaching. That's interesting, why? Because that means he knows what he is saying is offensive. That means he knows that what he's saying is difficult to process. And so he is able to anticipate that some objections will arise. Now, not only is he able to do that because he knows what he's teaching is offensive at some degree and difficult, but he's also able to do that because he knows that he's saying real things. And what I mean by that is he's teaching real things that people are actually interacting with. In other words, the doctrine of hell or the sovereignty of God is not what you make of it. It's a thing. And, and the way he's able to anticipate objections is because he knows that they're all thinking about the same thing. So he anticipates their objections because this is an objectionable thing at some degree to human sensibilities. And he also is able to anticipate their objections because he knows that he's actually saying something that means something. In other words, we can't go back into Paul 2,000 years later, and reinvent what he's saying so that it's less offensive, because that's not what's happening here. But there's a third thing he does, and it really kind of is this moment where you kind of have to decide what you're going to think about Paul in general, and, and also the Lord. The third thing he does is he asks questions of his own. So he responds to the questions that they're asking with questions of his own. Now, He asks two questions, at least. In verse 20, he says, are you God's equal? He says, who are you to speak that way to God? And then in verse 21, he says, uh, does the creator have rights over the creation? So he asks two questions. He he, He anticipates their questions, and he responds with questions of his own. Now, 
you could think that this is evasiveness on his part. Like this is some kind of playground rhetoric twit trick where it's like, I will not answer your question until you can answer my question, and, you know, or that he's just shutting them down with these sorts of questions. You could think that this is evasion or something like that, but I want to suggest that's not what's happening here. Paul is asking us to consider questions that we must have answers to before we can get the answers to our questions. So before we can think well about this issue, we have to be able to answer the questions that Paul puts forward. Paul's questions are not roadblocks to keep us from asking hard things about God. Paul's questions are on-ramps, saying you want to have this conversation, fine, but before we can get to your questions, you have to answer these more foundational ones. And the most foundational of all questions is, are you God? Right? That's, that's the, are you God? Are you God's equal? That's, that's the first question he asks. And he's not doing that to say, shut up. Don't ask these things. He's saying, if you want to have this conversation, we have to get our ducks in a row. And the first duck to get in the row, if you want to think well about this, is you need to answer, are you God? Are you God's equal? That's what he says. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And then Paul responds, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I don't think Paul's saying, who do you think you are in a condescending way? I think he's saying, how do you propose to lift the weight you've set before you? Who are you? Are you an equal with God. That's the idea of what's happening in that passage. It has the sense of two peers arguing. So that the idea is, is that is that God and you are, are equal peers and you're having a conversation and you're free to just be God's interlocutor and just ask difficult questions of God. And Paul says, okay, before we can actually understand these things, before we can approach a hard thing, and friends, this is true of circumstances and scriptures, before we can approach a hard circumstance or hard scripture, we have to ask one question of ourselves. Am I God? I think we should all set alarms on our phones to ask us this question three or four times a day. Because so much of the nonsense in our lives is tied to the confusion of what should be impossible to confuse. So much of the worry we carry, so much of the burden we carry, so much of the... So much of everything, so much of our stinking thinking, it's all part of this confusion that goes all the way back to Genesis where we desired to be like God. And so Paul says, if we're going to think well about an offensive thing, the very first thing we've got to nail down is, are you God? Now, don't answer no too quickly, okay? Because then you're just fooling yourself, because you need to understand that there's a part of you that thinks you are God. <laughs> there's a part of me that thinks I am God. So don't say, oh, of course I'm not God. Who would think that? You, like Tuesday at 11 p.m., you know, when someone's going slow in front of you in the road. Like, you'll think you're God in that moment, you know. Who would possibly think they're God? No, you will. Like, that's, that's, that's the deal. That's, that's the problem. So, so what do we do with this question, am I God? Or am I God's equal? Well, I think you could say, um, no, I'm not God, because there is no God. Okay, that's a possible answer. 
But let's just be clear that if that's the answer, let, that you're abandoning all prospects of, of right and wrong and good and evil and, and so forth. Like, like if, if that's the answer, no, I'm not God because there is no God. Well, okay, but then, then we don't really have standard definitions of fair and so forth. And, and all of this conversation is just moot. But if you conclude, I'm not God, but somebody else is, I think his name is Jesus, uh, if that's your answer, then what you mean by that is, I can have my standards and my sensibilities. I can find things difficult or objectionable or offensive. But in the end, my standards are not the standards by which reality operates. That's what I mean by this attitude of humility. I believe that, you know, the, the, there's this book about the love languages, you know. Is it five love languages? Is that right? Five love languages, and there's gifts and personal touch and words of affirmation. You ever meet someone whose love language is total endorsement of how they feel? <laughs> What's your love language? I want you to be 100% valid, validated and affirmed about how I feel and think. It's like, well, that's the human race. Why? Because we think we're God. And so this question of how to deal with things that are offensive, especially when they're coming from God, well, it's not a problem to say, it's not an ultimate problem to say, the doctrine of hell offends me. It's not an ultimate problem to say, the doctrine of God's sovereignty offends me. It's an ultimate problem if you say, and therefore, I will not accept it. And therefore, I'm running the other way. And therefore, I won't think about it. That's where the problem gets. Because we understand that we have secondary, highly dysfunctional standards of our own to deal with. And we understand. Friends, if I asked everyone to raise their hands who's happy there's a hell right now, I don't know that we'd get many hands. But if I went to eternity, if I went to paradise, if I went to heaven and I asked, raise your hand if you're happy there's a hell, everybody would say, I, yes. Now, what happens? Because that's you too, right? That's the 10,000-year-old you. What changed? I don't know exactly what changed, except to say that you see Jesus way more clearly than you did before, and you see how big he is and how glorious he is and how worthy he is. The truth is, is that you can be offended by something and still yield to the one who knows better. That's the very definition of what it means to walk with God. If there aren't these moments where you're uncertain or unsure or you're doubtful or you're even offended, if there aren't those moments where you have to give up your offense and give up your doubt and give up your uncertainty, then what, what is this all about? The problem isn't so much that we find these things offensive, though that's a problem. The problem is, is that we find that our offense is the ultimate determination on whether something's good or not or true or not. Right? That's the real problem. So Paul says, hey, before we talk about this, you've got to answer this question. Do you think you're God? And I think the, the, the honest answer is sometimes. Sometimes. That's something to clear up before you, you go digging in the, in the, in the deep bin of, of difficult doctrines. Okay, number two. Does a creator have rights over his creation? That's the next thing Paul asks. Does a creator have rights over his creation? Uh, at the end of verse 20, he says, Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay 
to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So does the creator have rights over his creation? Uh, let's think about that. How do you feel about your property? Would you be offended if someone stole it? Did you create your property? You, didn't, you almost certainly did not. Uh, you certainly didn't create it from nothing. But nevertheless, the things you own, you feel you have some right over, some authority over. How would you feel about your body? How do you feel about your body besides like grossed out or whatever? The, you know, <laughs> Depends how big a mirror you got, I guess. No, I mean, would you be offended if someone like violated your body? And why? Why is that wrong? Well, the whole the whole lie, right? The whole the whole the whole secondary truth that is presented as a primary truth is is that it's my body and my choice, right? And the idea is is that as the owner of this body, I have ultimate authority over it. So what you're saying there without realizing it is, is that a creator has rights over his creation. Okay, that's going to come back to bite you in the butt one day when you stand before holy God. Like that's the last thing I would ever want to hold up on a sign. Because one day that sign will be brought with you to eternity and God will say, exactly. Exactly. You're my creation. You're my property. I made you. Do I have rights over you? Did you acknowledge those rights in your life? Did you acknowledge those rights in the way you lived your life? So Paul says, if we want to really deal with this issue, we're going to have to answer the question, are you God? And secondly, if not, uh, does the God, the, the one who created all things, have authority over what he created? Can he do with his creation what he pleases and be entirely just? In doing so. So God's so Paul says, Can a potter decide to take one pot and use it for dishonorable use and another pot and use it for honorable use? Is that within the rights of a potter? And of course the answer is yes, but what you'll often hear people say is, But I, a human soul, is more than a pot. I am worth more than a pot. And I would just say, yes, but God is more than a potter. The greatest debasement in that metaphor is the debasement upon God. God is way more of a potter than you are way more than a pot. And if God has the authority and the right to do with what he will with his creation, then that's just the way it is. And sometimes something deeply offensive can be helpful because it centers us in the reality that is and we stop pretending that we have a say. And we don't sometimes. And sometimes the point is to just recognize what is real and stop pretending that you get a vote. Because you don't always get a vote. And of course, the older you get, the fewer votes you get over your life and your health. And we're all headed to the point where we get no votes, right? So sometimes the offensive thing is extraordinarily helpful because it just gets you back to what is real beyond all the nonsense we tell ourselves. So that's the first point, the first attitude we should approach this 
uh, difficult things with is humility. And the second one is gratitude. Look at verse 22. Here we see Paul say, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So there's an interesting idea here, again, extremely alien to us, uh, perhaps even offensive to us, and that would be that God is motivated in his actions ultimately by a desire to show his glory. That that is the ultimate motivation for God's actions in the world. That God's ultimate motivation for everything he does is to show himself glorious in all things. I posted on Basecamp this morning a link to a series of proof texts that just show throughout Scripture that this is indeed God's main motivation, his ultimate motivation for why he does what he does. And many of you are already there, you know this, so I'm not going to cover all of that before, all of that again. But let me just take a series of statements from Scripture just to help you to see that this idea that God's basic reason for doing what he's doing is to show his own glory. So the phrase, for my name's sake, God uses over and over again. For my name's sake. Uh, the phrase, for the sake of my praise. The phrase, for my own sake, I will do it. For my own sake. The phrase, how should my name be profaned? Uh, the phrase, my glory, I will not give to another. So Paul is saying in verse 22 that God's plan for heaven and hell, for saving and not saving, is that his glory would be shown in both. And that his plan for hell specifically is just as connected to his glory as his plan for heaven. Look at verse 16 of Romans 9. Paul uses the Pharaoh of Egypt as a specific example. It says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So what is God doing? God is showing his glory. What is God doing with heaven? God is showing his glory. What is God doing with hell? God is showing his glory. And the important thing to see in verse 22 is that God's desire to show his glory is directed toward you and I. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, okay? So desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. Now, I mean, I, I'm running out of time, but I, I want you to understand this simple idea. No wrath, no power, no glory. If God doesn't have wrath and power, he is not glorious. He is a limp-wristed, you know, passive, like incapable creature. He's impotent. If God doesn't have anger, he doesn't have love. If God doesn't have power, his love does nothing for us. Without God's wrath and his power, he would not be glorious. But this text is saying something even more than that. 
And he's, it's saying that God's aim in exerting his wrath and his power is that we would see his glory. So the first recipe is no wrath or power, no glory. And the second recipe is if I don't see God's wrath and power, I don't see his glory. That's what verse 22 is teaching. That if I don't actually see God's wrath and God's power, I don't see his glory. So Paul summarizes that by just saying, the goal of all of creation, the goal of all of redemption and condemnation, the goal of heaven, the goal of hell, is to make known his glory, and that specifically to make known his glory to his objects of mercy. The end of verse 23 there, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. So the whole idea of what God's doing here is he's proclaiming his glory. And who, who is he proclaiming his glory to? To the objects of mercy who will worship him forever and ever and ever. So two things about this really quickly. First one is, is that you may think that somehow if you don't talk about hell or if you kind of you know, hide it like the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving, you know, uh, the embarrassing relative, if you don't talk about this, you're making God look better. But this text says that actually that hell is a necessary piece of displaying God's glory. So hiding hell is not helping God look better. That's, that's definitely not what the Bible's teaching. That's, that's you operating under your, um, your standards, and I would totally get it. I would, I would be tempted to do absolutely the same thing. Uh, but it, it doesn't work, I guess is the point. And the second idea is simply this. The end of the day... What must occur, what must occur out of the Christian is a sense of gratitude for being saved from hell. A sense of gratitude for being saved from hell. Isn't that so simple? But my goodness, it is very possible. I mean, I might be speaking, I might just be showing my hand here. This might not be your problem. I think I could worry about hell, struggle with hell, disagree with it almost my whole life and never stop and just say, thank you, God, for saving me from it. I think I could keep the conversation going about the difficulties of the doctrine itself, about wondering about its fairness and so on and so forth without ever just sitting down and saying, but it's not up to me. It's up to you. I'm not God. And by the way, thank you for saving me from hell. See, there's, there's, in order for there to be gratitude over that reality, there's got to be gravity over the whole idea. Like, we've got to believe in it. We've got to believe it's true and real and terrible. And we'll talk about that next week. So one of the things, this attitude that must come when we deal with something that's difficult is, you know, humility. Listen, God, I don't know that I would do it this way. It, it, that's stupid, of course, because if I were you, I would. But my standards don't apply. I'm not God. I'm humble. Number two. God, this is difficult, but it's helping me to see your glory in some way. Maybe I see that, maybe I don't. Gratitude. Number three, sorrow. Sorrow. I believe that within our particular theological bandwidth or uh, column, the great danger is not at being overly offended by hell, but at being overly apathetic toward it. The proper attitude to hard teachings 
when hard teachings hurt people, is always at least a mixture of sorrow and grief and never flippancy and never, well, here's your verse, what's your problem? If there is a passage that causes someone to stumble, it should hurt our hearts that that person is stumbling. If there's a passage that predicts someone's destruction, it should break our hearts that someone is being destroyed. There's far too much coolness and casualness frankly, a distortion of Calvinism that accompanies this conversation. We should not be able to have this conversation without sorrow. And this was the first thing I thought as I was thinking, I've got I to do a sermon to prepare for the sermon on hell. By no means should we ever talk about this with Flippancy. D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon were friends, but theologically quite different. D.L. Moody did not believe in God's sovereignty over salvation. Charles Spurgeon did. But D.L. Moody would allow Spurgeon alone to preach on hell in his pulpit when he was gone because Spurgeon alone would cry. There is no room for coolness or apathy when discussing this hard thing or any hard thing. When someone's struggling over the Bible's teaching on sexuality or when someone's struggling over the Bible's teaching on, uh, on marriage or whatever, if they're struggling and it's hurting them, it should hurt us, period, end of story. No flippancy, no here's the verse, what's your problem? This is hard stuff. This is hard. One of the first passages of scriptures I memorized was out of Romans chapter 9. I don't think I still have it memorized. But it was, I was like 16 when I, when I did. But Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's. This is Paul's introduction to the hardest and most offensive, potentially, section of Scripture in the Bible. Speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience confirms in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. Paul believes in a divine election. Paul believes in hell. We can see that it is right to feel grieved over the implications those things, those true things will have on human beings. Our hearts should be breaking. Apathy is not an option. I feel like I don't want to, I don't want to scorch your face off with this statement. But doesn't it seem to you objectively, going away just from a distance a bit, to think that someone believes in hell but does not weep over it, doesn't that seem like a little sociopathic? There's no competition between something being true and something being hard, something being true and something being offensive, something being true and something making us weep. Listen to how John Calvin himself 
comments on this section. He says, the perdition of the Jews caused a very great anguish to Paul. Though he knew that it happened through the will and providence of God, he, we hence learn that the obedience we render to God's providence does not prevent us from grieving at the destruction of lost men. Though we know that they are thus doomed by the just judgment of God, for the same mind is capable of being influenced by these two feelings, that when it looks to God, it can willingly bear the ruin of those whom he has decreed to destroy, and that when it turns its thoughts to men, it condoles with their evils, it sympathizes with their evils. They are then much deceived who say that godly men ought to have apathy and insensibility lest they should resist the decree of God. There were already people, there were already hyper-Calvinists when Calvin was alive who were already saying like, well, listen, if this was God's will, if this is what God's doing, then, then, then if, you're a, if you're sorrowful about this, if it bothers you, if it's offensive to you, well, then you're just, you're just in rebellion to God's clear will. No, no, Calvin points to Romans 9, 1 through 3 and says, no, 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 no. It, it's entirely appropriate to both see and acknowledge God's divine will over these very difficult things, while at the same time saying, as a man looking at other men, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I myself would wish that I could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That's what we see throughout Scripture. And it would be entirely, just sociopathic's not the wrong word here, friends. It would be entirely inappropriate to say, well, as we're dealing with hard things, let's remember to be humble, and, you know, let's remember to be grateful, without ending by saying, and let's remember to weep. Because that's where this passage begins. And we see it consistently in all of our heroes of the faith. That no matter how firm they were or clear they were on God's providential sovereign work in the universe. Sovereign work in the world. When it came to the judgment of people, they wept. Luke 19. Jesus draws near and sees the city of Jerusalem. And weeps over it, saying, Woe that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's weeping over a judgment he himself would bring on the city of Jerusalem. When Paul speaks of the enemies of the cross in Philippians 3.18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We do not understand these hard things if these hard things do not hurt our hearts over the implications These men who wept over the judgment they saw as both God's will and right wept and also worked. They worked that God might save some. So that's the idea when we come to difficult doctrines. There seems to be three basic attitudes that are necessary. Humility. Are you God? 
Does God have a right over his creation? Gratitude. God, this hard thing is hard and it's, it's difficult, but thank you for your mercy and your grace. There's always room for gratitude, no matter how dark, no matter how dark your life is, there's always room for gratitude. And that gratitude will be the one few lights that you have in that darkness. You're foolish to abandon gratitude in your darkness. You need it. And number three, it's okay to hurt. It may be more than okay to hurt. It may be entirely the most appropriate thing to do when encountering a difficult truth, a difficult circumstance. Let me leave you with this. I was thinking about space shuttle days in regards to all this, and this is my limited understanding from watching a few movies, I think. But the, the real trick in returning the space shuttle to Earth was just to get the right angle of approach. And if you, if you got the wrong angle of approach, you would bounce off or you would burn up. But you had to just have the right angle of approach. And I've seen throughout the years, pastors deconvert and Christians leave the faith. And that seems to be a burning up. They, they come to these difficult truths, whether it's a circumstantial or a scriptural one. They come to a difficult one. They don't approach with the right attitude, right? Because attitude is angle. And they don't approach with the right attitude. They just burn up. I've seen a lot of Christians just say, you know, I, I don't. I don't know, and, I, and that kind of makes me feel weird, so I'm just going to bounce off. <laughs> I'm going to go back out into space. But I think Romans 9, in addition to presenting very difficult doctrines, also says there is an attitude. There's a series of attitudes. There's an approach that we can take in dealing with difficult truths and circumstances that get us through. That get us through. And that's the goal sometimes, friends. That's sometimes the only goal. Just to get through. And I think that's what Jesus is doing for us through his word this morning. He's given us these attitudes that allow our approach to get us through. Let me pray. Gracious God.